He is risen. He is risen Amen. Most of you know who B.H. Carroll was, founder of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. What many of you may not know is that he had been a pastor for many, many years before that. The last pastorate before he came to Fort Worth was First Baptist Church Waco. He was a pastor, teacher, preacher. As a young boy, he was born in 1843. In the early 1840s, his family migrated from Carroll County, yes, Ben, Mississippi. And it took them weeks on a wagon to go to, yes, Larry, Arkansas. And then, as a 15-year-old, they decided to move to Burleson County, <clears throat> just south of here. And it took them probably a couple of weeks. He rode a mule and scouted ahead of the family. If you would have told him in 1858 that the Dallas Stars would get on a plane and fly to Buffalo, New York, and over the next 10 days play in five different cities, in Seattle, Vancouver, Calgary, and Edmonton across the northwest of Canada and return within a fortnight, he would have said, that's unbelievable. That's impossible. It took over a week to cross the Atlantic back then. <clears throat> if you had told him that people would get on a jet in New York City and be in London within seven hours, he would say, that is unbelievable. He would have thought that John Kennedy was an insane man in May of 1961 when he predicted and he challenged NASA to put a man on the moon before the end of the decade, and they made that deadline by six months in July of 1969 with Neil Armstrong. Unbelievable. You know, when Alexander Graham Bell made his first phone call in March of 1876, about 150 years ago, and, and he said to the assistant in the next room, Mr. Watson, come here, I want to see you. He probably would have never believed that I would have to tell you to turn your cell phones off this morning. <laughs> he would not be familiar with that ubiquitous friend of ours, Spam Risk. He would not be besieged by people that wanted to sell him siding and put solar panels on his roof. He would say it's unbelievable that you could, what is FaceTime? That you could FaceTime someone in China this morning and teach a class to Russia this evening. And the things that you were doing on Facebook, people in the far-flung parts of this world would see almost instantaneously. You know, I went to seminary 77 to 80. I finished, I did all of my papers on a manual typewriter. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Whiteout is not a weather condition. Mimeographs with blue stencils that you would have to, you remember, Gail, you have to take that repair ink and, and fix it when you make a mistake, you know? In 1981, I went to Heidelberg, Germany. I was on a short tour with the Army, and I walked into a room, and they told me, you're going to process a document. And I looked at a wall of computers, and there was a tiny little green screen in front of me. 
And I typed on a typewriter that was not mechanical. It wasn't manual. It was electronic. And then I pushed a button, and a dot matrix printer produced a document. Unbelievable. You can buy a TI handheld calculator about this size that has the computing power of what it took to put Neil Armstrong on the moon. These are unbelievable facts. When we look at the future, if I were to tell you that someday that we would be able to transmigrate a body from one place to the other instantaneously, you would say that is what? Unbelievable. And that may never happen. I don't know. But the point is this. Most of those things seem to be unbelievable in the instant now, but we know that they have natural explanations for them. They're doable because we learn how to train and to control nature. We all know this, that what happened 2,000 years ago cannot be explained naturally, and it is truly, truly unbelievable. You know, the importance of the resurrection, it is paramount. We know that. Jesus commissioned his apostles for this purpose. He called them as we heard from what Joe read. Peter tells Cornelius, I was called to be a what? A witness. In Luke's gospel at the very end, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And you, he said to his disciples, you are witnesses of these things. The apostles made this the central platform of their preaching. Peter made it the center point of his Pentecost sermons. He looked at the crowd there, many of whom had called for Jesus' death, and he said, but you put the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, to death. And to that fact, we are witnesses. You heard Joe read this morning from Acts he tells Cornelius, we're witnesses, that is our commission. And all the apostles were told in Acts then, with great power gave testimony, gave witness to the resurrection of Christ. It was Paul's central claim when he was put on trial in Jerusalem before the Sanhedrin. He said, I'm on trial for this reason, and this reason alone, that I preach the hope of the resurrection of the dead. You see, the whole gospel hangs upon this truth that he described of first importance. In 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, what we call the resurrection chapter of Scripture, you know what he said. He said, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is what? It's empty. It's vanity. There's nothing to it. And your faith too, Corinthians. Your faith, too, is also empty. It's vain. It has no meaning. You know, since that day, many have rejected the resurrection. Matthew gives us the account that the chief priest had to bribe the guards to lie that they had stolen Jesus's body. There's an irony in that. I think that they actually feared that it might be true. They feared that if it were true, it would turn their world upside down. And guess what? It did. The Sanhedrin tried to silence the apostles. For what reason? The charge was very simple. 
They were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And Jesus had not been surprised by that. He told his disciples, and he told those that were listening to him, and he told those who would not follow him and would not listen to him any further. You, you see, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, if they don't listen to the Scripture, if they don't listen to the Old Covenant as we describe it, if they don't listen to the Scripture, then they will not be persuaded even if someone rises to the dead, rises from the dead. And you know who he was talking about. You see, there were those that tried to cover it up. There was opposition on all fronts. The Sadducees, of course, denied not only the resurrection but the afterlife, and it caused dissension in the Sanhedrin. We read in Acts, the 23rd chapter, between them and the Pharisees. The Corinthian Christians, in their midst, there were some that had been influenced apparently by the Epicureans, and some Christians in Corinth were even denying the resurrection of the dead. And that's why Paul then addresses it near the end of his letter. In Athens, the philosophers, the Epicureans, and the Stoics on the, at the Areopagus, materialists who did not believe in supernaturality. When, Peter, when, when Paul began to speak about the resurrection, they sneered and they laughed. A few believed, but most didn't. That opposition continued through the centuries. The second century Greek philosopher, Celsus, and the third century Phoenician Neoplatonist, Porphyry, absolutely denied and repudiated the resurrection. All the way through the centuries, there have been some that have opposed it. We come to the 18th century Enlightenment, and people like philosophers like David Hume, and theologians like Samuel Rimaris and Gotthold Lessing, laughed at the resurrection. You don't have evidence of it. And today, many do not believe it. Liberal theologians who call themselves Christians question the historical Jesus and discount miracles wholesale. Philosophers and some scientists who are skeptics demand testable evidence of everything, and they say there's no absolute evidence for the resurrection. Agnostic and atheistic worldviews are naturalistic. You see, the only things that can happen are natural events. There is nothing supernatural and miracles do not occur. Who then were the first doubters? Who were the first who questioned the resurrection? Who were the first ones that didn't believe? Well, you might be surprised to know that they were the earliest followers of Jesus. On hearing that when they came to the tomb, the women, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, Salome, Joanna. What does Mary Magdalene do when she sees the empty tomb? She immediately assumes that his body has been removed and buried somewhere else. When the angels spoke to them, they were afraid and they were amazed. When they heard his message that he had risen, they trembled with astonishment. But they were still afraid. When they left, Gospel, the Gospel of Mark tells us when they left the tomb, they, they left with fear and trembling, even as they went to tell the disciples. It was only when they saw Jesus, when they met him on the way, then they fell and worshiped at his feet. When Peter and John went to the tomb, Peter marveled. He was awestruck, but he didn't understand. The only one that believed instantly was John. He believed immediately, but the Scripture tells us that even he did not understand what was happening. 
the disciples that are waiting in some room. We don't know what it was, which one it was. It may have been the upper room in Jerusalem. They were waiting. And the women come, and when they give their report that they have seen the resurrected Lord, they said it was what? That's nonsense. They didn't believe. They refused to believe, Mark tells us. When the two on the road to Emmaus then return to Jerusalem, and then they give further testimony that they have seen Jesus on the road, what do the disciples say? We don't believe you. It wasn't until he appeared in the room instantly behind locked doors that then they began to see. But they were terrified. They were thrown into fear. They were perplexed. They were hesitant. They doubted. They thought they were seeing a ghost. And Jesus didn't pat them on the back and encourage them at that moment. He rebuked them. He rebuked them for not believing the reports that had come to them. You see, the first doubters of the resurrection were those who had followed him for years in Galilee. But then Jesus, who loved them and wanted to encourage them, exhorted them to believe. He showed them the wounds in his hands and his side, and they rejoiced. But there's a very curious statement that Luke makes in the 24th chapter. Even then it says, they could not believe for joy and amazement. They were overjoyed at the possibility that Jesus was apparently resurrected, but they still had a lot of questions. They were awed with wonder, but they couldn't get their minds around this unbelievable fact. They were afraid. They were fearful, very much like when they saw Jesus walking on the water on the Sea of Galilee, they may have thought he was a ghost. So he demonstrated his humanity. He took some food and he ate it, and he, and he showed, I, I am the resurrected Lord in, in body. I am he. I am your master, your rabbi, Jesus. And then he opened the scriptures, and he explained everything more fully to them. And yet there was one who was not there, and he came later, and he doubted. We know his name. It was who? It was Thomas. I won't believe. I won't believe until I see the wounds. Until I put my hands on him and I touch him. And when Jesus revealed himself to Thomas then later on the second appearance, he responded worshipfully. Doesn't say that he worshiped, but he did. For he looked at him and he said, you are my Lord and my God. And then for 40 days, Acts tells us at the beginning of Luke's account, Jesus performed many convincing works and proofs. And John in his gospel said that he performed many miracles during this period that are not even recorded in Scripture. And he taught them about the kingdom of God. And he presented himself time and time again as being alive after his suffering to his disciples. And Paul tells us then in that chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians that he appeared to many witnesses. First to Peter and then the other disciples. And then to James and all the apostles, and then to more than 500 brothers at one time, and then to Paul on the road, of course, to Damascus. It may have been that group of 500 at one time that is the background for today's text. We're not sure. That is the giving of the Great Commission, and we're not going to go into the Great Commission part, verses 18 through 20. We're going to look at the setting and what happened just before the Great Commission, And in Matthew, the 28th chapter, it says this, just two verses. 
This may have been near the end of that 40 days. But the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshiped. But some were doubtful. The 11 went to the mountain in Galilee that Jesus had designated. Of course, the 11, because Judas apparently already has committed suicide. We don't know the exact timing of that, but apparently it was before this. And Matthias has not been re- become the replacement that we find then later in Acts. It's possible. It is possible that others did join the 11 that they are there. There may have been the 70. There may have been as many as 500. We don't know. It's possible they were there. And they went to Galilee following Jesus' command. After the Lord's Supper, what did he say? I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And that's before he predicted that Peter was going to, to disavow him. And then the angel at the tomb told the women Jesus' message and said, you need to go tell the disciples. And then on the way from the tomb to see the disciples, they saw, they saw Jesus. And Jesus told them, you go tell the disciples that I'm going into Galilee. And the significance, of course, of that is he then leaves the hotbed of controversy in Jerusalem and he retreats to Galilee, which is the location of his original ministry, and probably a place that is a bit safer, even though Herod rules over Galilee, for that 40 days so that he can reveal himself to his disciples. And then, of course, it is in Galilee of the Gentiles. Galilee of the Gentiles, where he stands on this hill and he gives the great commission to take the gospel to all of the nations, to all the ethnoi, to all of the Gentiles, you see, even beyond, that is, the Jews. They go to a mountain that Jesus designated, and we don't know what it was. Some say it may have been where he preached the Sermon on the Mount, where he taught, which traditionally is Mount Aramis. And they think that maybe it was that mountain because he tells them in the Great Commission then to do what? Teach them all the things that I commanded you. It may have been the Mount of Transfiguration, which traditionally is Mount Tabor. We're not sure, but we think it was. And it may have been that because they say this is where he manifested his glory and he is about to do the very same thing when he goes back to Judea and Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives and he is then transported to heaven. It may have been, and this is what tradition says, Mount Arbel near Tiberias, the highest point, the highest mountain on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. Standing upon that promontory, you can see almost all of Galilee, and you can certainly see virtually all the Sea of Galilee. And you can imagine Jesus giving the Great Commission then as they look out over this vast expanse. And he says, as you're going, you're to go to all the world, and you're to make disciples of all nations. We don't know exactly where it was, but we know that it was probably a breathtaking place where they received the commission. And when they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Now, here's a problem. Why would they doubt? How could they doubt? If they had believed in Jerusalem, if they had seen him, if Thomas says, my Lord and my God, they'd witnessed the miracles. He had manifested himself time and time and time again by this point, almost certainly. Then how could they doubt? They, they came and they worshiped him. How can one worship and at the same time doubt? I think the answer is resolved by looking at three very obvious things. What does it mean to worship Jesus? What does it mean to doubt? 
And who are these some who doubt it? What does it mean to worship Jesus? You know the word means basically to to fall face down, to prostrate oneself, to fall at the feet of one's Lord, maybe even to kiss the hand, to show devotion to one's master. This isn't the first time this has happened with Jesus. There are 10 other instances beside this one in the gospel where we know that people worshiped him before this time. Five times it was because of the demonstration of his power and they were awestruck by him and they adored him for his apparent deity. Five other times they came and worshiped as a prelude. They submitted as a prelude then to do what? To ask Jesus to do something for them. The two or three principles I think that we see about this business of worship. Friends, not all worship is true worship. Not all worship is offered by the followers of Jesus Christ. In America and around the globe today, there are people who fill the churches maybe once or twice a year who come to worship, but they are not followers. They're not believers. And they may or may not be rendering true worship. Some gave false worship to Jesus. As he was about to be crucified, the soldiers beat him, struck him, spit upon him, blasphemed him, and at the same time then they bowed down before him, the scripture said, and worshiped him. That's false worship. Even the demons worshiped Jesus. Legion, when he sees Jesus coming to him there in the Decapolis, the demons inside then worship him. They proclaim, they they propel him to the feet of Jesus, and they worship him in this sense. They call him Jesus, son of the most high God, and as a prelude then for their request to be then put into the swine. You see, not all worship is true worship, and not all worship is rendered by followers of Christ. There's a second principle. Not all worship pleases God. Worship is not coming here to manipulate God to get what we want. Think of the example of the mother of James and John, sons of Zebedee in Matthew 20. She came and worshiped. She fell at his feet, bowed down before Jesus, and he said, what do you want? And you know what she wanted? She wanted the self-serving motive of having her sons promoted to prime ministers to be fulfilled, you see. Now, I'm not saying that she didn't worship Jesus, but you see, there was a motive behind this particular act of worship, which was probably not too pleasing for God. Jesus said what to her? That's not for me to to decide. You see, that's not my decision. And then later, he dealt with James and John individually on that issue. Worship is also not, you, you know, just empty ceremonies and legalistic rituals. Like I said, churches are filled today with people who come to a religious ceremony and they may not have been since Christmas. Hmm. They see it as an obligation to fulfill some kind of maybe legalistic requirement, maybe. But you see, God doesn't require that. God does not require countless sacrifices of rams. He does not require rivers of oil, the prophets tell us. What he requires in worship is that we serve him sacrificially, that we love his mercy, that we do his justice, and that we walk with him humbly. So second principle is, you know, not all worship pleases God. There's a third principle. 
and that is genuine worship. In fact, we know what it is. We spent about four months dealing with that when we looked at what the Scripture said about worship, and we know what it is. It's giving ourselves sacrificially to the Lord God Almighty. We're living sacrifices, Paul tells us in Romans 12. We come to his altar and we present ourselves as living sacrifices this morning. We offer up spiritual sacrifices to him, Peter tells us, as a, as a spiritual priesthood of believers. And Jesus told the woman then at the well that we are called to do what? To worship the Father in what? Help me, congregation. In spirit and in truth. That is genuine worship. So what occurs on the mountain? What occurs here? You see, they come to the place that Jesus designated, the mountain in Galilee, and it says, and they worshiped, and your version may say worshiped him. One problem. That word is not in the original Greek. It says they simply worshiped. And some say, well, they didn't worship Jesus. They, they worshiped God who had resurrected him. But folks, the meaning is obvious here. The meaning is obvious. You see, he was the object of these disciples' devotion. They had come because they were obeying his command to meet him there. They were worshiping, they knew the divine son of God. Just like when they had been in the boat and, and Jesus had stilled the storm and they had been fearful. And then they look at him and they say, you are the son of God. Peter knew that. He made his confession at Caesarea Philippi. They recognize him as the divine son of God. Like the blind man, the one that was blind from birth. When Jesus reveals himself in the temple to this man as the son of man, he looks at him and he says, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. The women, as they leave the tomb and then they encounter Jesus, they fall at his feet and they worship him. Thomas, when he realizes who he is, says, my Lord and my God. When they come to this point on this mountain, these disciples, these 11, know whom they have come to meet. He is the Lord not just a human rabbi. He is a resurrected son of God, and they understand that, and their worship is sincere, directed to their master, their rabbi, the resurrected Christ. That makes the problem even more difficult then. Why did they doubt? So what does it mean to doubt? The word that is used here is not the normal word for doubt. The normal word for doubt that's used almost 20 times in the uh, New Testament means to contend with oneself, to, to, to argue with oneself, to, to deeply to question one's beliefs. It's not one of the other two words that are used more usually that mean to be perplexed. The women, for example, when they see the empty tomb, were perplexed that it was empty. Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 says, they were troubled on every side, but not distressed. We are perplexed, you see, but not in despair. It's not those words. This word is used only here and one other time in the New Testament. It's used in, in Matthew, the 14th chapter, when Peter has stepped out on the water, and then he did what? He doubted. But the word there is this word, and it means that he wavered. And that instantaneous, momentary wavering caused him to begin to what? To sink. That's what it means. It means to, to waver, momentarily, to falter. Four times previously, Jesus has described this kind of wavering, even though the verb is not used in these instances. He's described this kind of momentarily wavering as, O oh, ye of what? Little faith. Not no faith, but little faith. Hmm. 
I think that's what's happening here. They believe, but like the man who had the son that could not be healed by the disciples, and Jesus says everything is possible for him who believes, the man looks at Jesus and he says what? I believe, but help me in my unbelief. Oh, ye of little faith. And then there's a third issue. Who were these some that have come then that worship and some doubted? And the early church said that there were others with them. There were maybe 70, maybe 500. And so the doubters are those folks that are on the periphery. They're not the 11. They wouldn't doubt. The problem is the text doesn't say that. The text says the 11 come and they worship and some doubted. The early church also said that maybe what it was was their doubt from an earlier time. There are two verbs here, that they, 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 they came and they worshiped, but they had doubted. The problem with that, folks, is both of the verbs are in the same tense. In other words, the text literally says that they worshiped and then some doubted. Some would say that part of the 11 worshiped, not all of them, and the others doubted, but that's not what the text says. I think there are a couple of solutions who the some might be. One is, they all worshiped, but some of the worshipers indeed did doubt. They wavered momentarily. These worshipers maybe weren't quite as strong as their faith as others. Hmm. And this is probably the most common and I think accurate interpretation. Eleven, they all worshiped, but some had little faith for whatever reason. There's another explanation, and that is that the sum means something within all of them doubted. All 11 worshiped, but within each one of them, something wavered a bit. Like the women, you see. They were both filled with joy, but at the same time, fear. Like the disciples in the room, it says they could not believe because of their joy and amazement. I think what it's saying here, and I think it's, an act, it, it's a legitimate interpretation. They all worship, but to some degree or another, they wavered a bit in some aspect of their being. So let's apply this. I think the application of the text reminds us that the resurrection is indeed, friends, unbelievable. God did something unfathomable, unreasonable in human terms. No wonder the world is skeptical today. No wonder that many do not believe. Even the disciples at the beginning refused to believe. And they, I think, continue to have questions on the mountain, though they believe. You see, this was God's supernatural act beyond natural power and beyond human reason to explain. If it were reasonable, if it were explainable in natural terms, friends, it would not have accomplished God's supernatural purpose. And what was that? That the Son of God would become the Son of Man, and that He would die on the cross to cancel the power of sin to condemn us. Wow, that is supernatural. The Scripture says only who can forgive sin, only God can forgive sin. Supernatural. God's supernatural purpose was to resurrect the Father, to resurrect His Son, to defeat the power of mortality and death, and to prevent the obstruction to eternal life. That is supernatural, not natural. Only God can forgive sin, only God can raise the dead, and only God can grant eternal life. If we make the resurrection just a reasonable, natural event, folks, it cancels out. God's supernatural purpose. 
And so I think there are three responses that we find today to the resurrection. There are the humanistic skeptics. They demand scientific proof for Christ's resurrection. Some philosophers, some scientists, some everyday folks. Those people will not come to a saving knowledge of the truth. Apart from God's revealed word, it is not reasonable. To paraphrase what Jesus had earlier said about Moses and the prophets, he would say today, whoever doesn't listen to the scripture, whoever does not listen to the witness of the new covenant will not be persuaded even though I have risen from the dead. To quote Jesus, this is what he said to the Sadducees, you are mistaken because you do not understand the scripture or the power of God. This is a supernatural thing that the human skeptic mind does not understand. There's a second response to the resurrection, and that is hollow worshipers who attend Easter services like they do Christmas, only as a religious ceremony, but without genuine faith, who attend worship only maybe for what God can do for them, for prosperity and gain, some of them. Jesus rejects this worship with Isaiah's words. He looks at the religious leaders, and he says, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. You see, they worship me in vain. There are those whose worship is based on works and not faith in the power of the resurrected Christ. You see, somehow there's something that I can do in worship and fulfill in ceremony and liturgy and ritual that will save me. And Paul reminds us that all of our works are but filthy rags. Our riches are are but rubbish, and our righteousness doesn't come from the law. And he gave all of that up for this reason, and it's connected with the resurrection, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. You see, hollow worshiping legalistic works is not genuine worship, and it never leads to salvation. And then there's a third response to the resurrection, and it is people who humbly seek, humble seekers. They trust in Christ alone, and they believe in the promises of His Word, His Word which is revealed, His Word which is not a natural thing, it is supernatural. And this is the only valid response to the resurrection, which is God's unreasonable act. You see, it requires, friends, a leap in faith to believe the unbelievable. You see, humble seekers understand that they do not understand everything perfectly. The disciples on the mountain. For we know that we see through a glass darkly, Paul says, but when some, there's going to come a day when we see face to face and we will know fully just as we have been known by him. We see darkly. Our faith is, is weak. It's obscured. They admit, humble seekers, that they, I, you, like all believers, occasionally, and folks, this is the tough part, occasionally doubt. Yes, even preachers doubt. Even deacons doubt. Even Sunday school teachers doubt. There is a moment of wavering sometime in all of our lives. Don't tell me you don't. Don't lie in church. There was no greater one than John the Baptist, Jesus said. And in what context did he say that? 
They have come to express John's doubts about whether or not he is the expected one. Even John doubted. Oh, to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace now like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Folks, the human heart is prone to wonder. We all waver. We all have some doubts. The humble seeker, though, relies on Christ to strengthen his or her faith. O oh, ye of little faith. You see, our faith, apart from Christ, is insipid. It is weak. It has virtually no power. And what we must do is we must ask for the faith of Christ that the Father gives us to strengthen us. Seven times Paul speaks about the faith of Christ, and that is referring to Christ's worthiness. Christ's worthiness to be trusted. Christ's worthiness to be trusted that he implants in our heart and it grows like a seed and he nurtures it and our, grow, our faith grows strong because it is not my faith, it is the faith of Christ that has been given to me. O ye of little faith, we must be like the disciples. There is a passage in Luke 17. The disciples come to him and they say, Lord, increase our faith. And he did. Finally, where does this leave us? If you're a believer this morning, you have three duties. Not just the preacher, but you do too. The first is to proclaim, the second is to explain, and the third is to testify. We must do what? Not just on Easter morning. We must proclaim, each one of us, wherever we go, the scriptural record of those who witnessed the resurrection and God's revelation of what it means and the significance to his plan of redemption. We must be proclaimers. Proclaim what is written in the Word of God that gives an accurate account. Even though the world doesn't believe it, it is infallibly true. We must explain. Yes, they will ask for us to give an account of the hope that is in us, and we must give a reasoned argument for that hope. We must give logical and coherent explanations of the resurrection so that people can understand God's plan and purpose. But there's a word of warning here, friends. Never never then reduce the message of the resurrection to some reasonable act with clever words, with worldly wisdom, so that they might understand. No, we must proclaim then the radical, supernatural message of the Word of God. Otherwise, Paul tells us, we empty the cross of Christ and make it empty and to no effect. You see, ultimately, this is a radical, unreasonable, unexplainable, impossible message. (laughs) We must accept it by faith through God's revelation. So we proclaim it, and we explain it in its unvarnished truth, and as well as possible, help people understand it, and then we testify. And this is what seals it for most folks. We share then with others our personal faith encounter with a resurrected Lord. Like the women, they come rushing then into the room, and they say, you won't believe it. It's unbelievable. We have seen the Lord. My question for you is, have you encountered the resurrected Lord? Do you have a testimony to give? Can you share that your faith encounter with Him has given you eternal life and you've met the resurrected Lord so that they might know how to respond when that Holy Spirit speaks in their life, that still small voice begins to raise doubts 
about their human perspective, begins to raise doubts about what the world says about the resurrection, and they seek to know what the Word of God says, and you share it with them through a personal testimony as they're drawn to Jesus Christ. Friends, this morning, the invitation is open. Jesus Christ is a resurrected Lord. He is risen, and He invites you. If you have not been giving genuine worship, if you have not trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for whatever reason, online, if the Word of God has spoken to you through the resurrected Christ who has given us His covenant promise of eternal life, you know you're a sinner. You know that you cannot save yourself. No matter how you have tried through whatever machinations, through whatever kind of works, and you're tired and weary, and you want to come home, Jesus says, come home, sinner. Come home. Come to me and yoke yourself with me, for you see my burden is light. And I will carry you through the portal of eternity, and I will give you eternal life, for I have prepared a place for you in my Father's house. And I can do that, because I have canceled sin, I have defeated death, and I promise those who believe in me, I am the resurrection and the life. And he invites you home.